president gets a corona test, which we're told are finally coming for the rest of us again. The CDC recommends no gatherings over 50 people for eight weeks, which is unprecedented. Cities and states consider lockdown. Communities big and small are hunkering down. And we are officially in a state of emergency, in case you all didn't already know that. This is America Dissected, and I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. There was a lot to catch up on over the last three days. Some of you may have been absorbed by the news, others less so. So let me take you through what's been going on. First, COVID-19 has now hit 49 states. I've got to figure out what they're doing in West Virginia. With almost 4,000 confirmed cases and at least 69 deaths in the U.S. as of Monday. As an epidemiologist, I'll be honest though, I'm skeptical of these numbers. That's because they're probably an underestimate of the actual number of cases. And that's because the number of cases is limited by the number of tests. As we all know, testing has been so limited that it's highly likely that a number of people with COVID-19 have just gone without testing. We're now seeing cities and states shut down schools, bars, entertainment venues, and place heavy restrictions on restaurants. Basically, anywhere where people might congregate. Like we talked about last time, these drastic mitigation efforts are aimed at slowing the spread of the virus, i.e. flattening the curve so we can prevent our hospitals from being overloaded and buy more time to prepare and up our capacity to deal with this thing. I just want to explain what that means one more time. If you're a hospital administrator, you're trying to ramp up as fast as you possibly can. But if the number of cases overwhelms your ability to ramp up, at some point you have to decide who gets necessary care and who doesn't, and that's what's happening in Italy right now. So all of the steps we're doing are to slow the spread so we're not faced with making those decisions. But these mitigation efforts will take a serious economic toll on poor and working people who rely on tips from waiting tables or minimum wages for cleaning dishes. While the public health response has been swift, the economic and social response, through universal paid sick leave or basic income guarantees, hasn't been. But for now, let me take you back to Friday. In an address from the White House Rose Garden, President Trump finally declared a state of emergency around COVID-19. To unleash the full power of the federal government in this effort today, I am officially declaring a national emergency. It provided the Secretary of Health and Human Services powers to adjust regulations for and unlock funding within Medicare, Medicaid, and the Children's Health Insurance Program to tackle the COVID-19 pandemic. Trump, flanked by a troop of CEOs, invited them to come up one at a time to pledge their support. The group included the heads of retailers like Walmart. We were eager to do our part to help serve the country. Target. We're focused on a common competitor. And Walgreens. Our stores are a beacon in the community. Lab testing CEOs from Quest and LabCorp, and a lot of others. But what drew the most notice from the press conference were his comments about who's responsible for the government's response so far. No, I don't take responsibility at all because we were given a uh, a set of circumstances and we were given rules, regulations, and specifications from a different time, uh, wasn't meant for this kind of uh, an event. And finally, he was asked about shutting down the National Security Council's pandemic office. You say we did that. I don't know anything about it. For the record, Trump's administration did, in fact, disband that office in 2018. Now, here's my take. I think the declaration of emergency was critical. I do think our health system requires a level of agility right now to deliver health care as it's needed. Facilitating telemedicine is critical to reducing transmission while caring for folks. But here's the problem. Trump is the president of the United States. He's the leader of our government. And rather than show how the government is gearing up to lead the response, 
He brought a group of CEOs out to talk about the leadership of the private sector. He trooped out his CEOs to speak even before the supposed leader of the government response, Vice President Mike Pence. But do we really want public health in a time of crisis being led by folks who have a profit motive underneath their aims? In effect, he's telling us that he doesn't believe that government can do the job. Which forces us to ask, why not? And that's what I want to talk about today, our country's public health infrastructure. If you listen to season one of this podcast, you remember that public health is the kind of thing you only really appreciate in its absence. When it's working well, it works quietly, behind the scenes, keeping us healthy without our even knowing it. And when it's failing, we wonder where it was. It's a catch-22. Have you ever cleaned out your closet only to find yourself wishing a few weeks later that you hadn't tossed that perfectly good shirt? Well, that's what happens when you defund public health. You're left without the thing you wanted in the first place because you cleaned it out. The fact that public health quietly, capably works in the background means that it's not flashy. We've all heard politicians campaign on, quote-unquote, cutting government waste. But here's the problem. They don't usually know how the government works. So to them, everything that isn't flashy seems wasteful. And that's why they almost always seem to go after public health. Take, for example, Donald Trump. In his first fiscal year 2018 budget, he proposed cutting the CDC budget by 18%, to which the previous CDC director tweeted, proposed CDC budget, unsafe at any level of enactment, would increase illness, deaths, risk to Americans, and healthcare costs. How prescient those words seem now. Trump has proposed budget cuts to the CDC in every single budget since, including the one being worked out right now. In fact, last week, his budget director defended a 15% cut to the CDC, including a $35 million decrease to the Infectious Disease Rapid Response Reserve Fund's annual contribution. Mm, You think we need that right now? So in the middle of an infectious disease pandemic, the White House is doubling down on its call to cut public health funding. But the CDC isn't the country's only government public health institution. Not even close. It's just the top layer. Beneath that, there are over 3,000 local health departments in the U.S. and one for every state and territory, like D.C., Puerto Rico, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and indigenous tribes. And these health departments have had their funding decimated. Estimates suggest that over the past 15 years, funding has fallen up to 45% after adjusting for inflation. When I was health commissioner in Detroit, I was hired to rebuild a department that had been completely privatized when the city went bankrupt. What little money we did have coming in from the state and the federal government was programmed for specific causes, albeit they important, things like lead testing and immunizations. But we had precious little money that could be reprioritized where it was needed, like taking lead out of schools or responding to a hepatitis A outbreak. That means that the ability to ramp up in response to whole-of-society public health threats like COVID-19 on such a strapped budget is abysmally low. But let me tell you something that I learned while I was working as a public health commissioner. The colleagues I got to work with were some of the most incredible professionals in America. People who come to work every day for the sole purpose of keeping their neighbors healthy. And even where we may have lacked the resources to take on big challenges, we figured out ways to do it. Whether it meant finding like-minded partners in the philanthropic world or reaching out to leaders in our community who could facilitate our work. And we're seeing examples of that all around us right now. It's no substitute for proper resources, though, because public health is hard to do, especially in emergencies. It takes money, extensive planning, infrastructure, and coordination between all levels of government. 
And that's what we're going to explore further with my guest today, John Auerbach. John has worked at almost every level of public health, from city to state to federal. He spent nine years as Boston's health commissioner, six years as Massachusetts health commissioner, and several years as associate director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC. He's currently president and CEO at the Trust for America's Health. I spoke to John last Friday. Here's our conversation. All right. Um, so, John, uh, can you tell us a little bit about um, your your work in public health? You've worked uh, at the local level, at the state level, and at the federal level with the CDC. In your time uh, in public health, um, you've, I'm sure, seen a number of emergency situations, um, none you know, to the degree of, of, of this one with coronavirus. But um, can you tell us how the system works together in moments of crisis? What, goes, what has to go right uh, for the response to really uh, take hold and, and help protect the public? Sure. Well, I have been involved in a number of them. I'll mention just a few of the ones that I've worked on. I was a local health officer after 9-11 and so was involved in um, the anthrax response. Um, Some concerns existed then around smallpox as well. Later, I was involved as a state health official in the H1N1 response, and that that also was a pandemic and uh, one where there was um, a great deal of concern about the spread of infectious disease and a desire for a vaccine. And then I was at CDC during the Ebola and the Zika responses, and so I was able to see both the global and the domestic um, work that went on there. Um, For an infectious disease outbreak um, that has the potential to spread across the country, um, people do look to CDC for guidance. Uh, the CDC uh, is able to have a national perspective because it's talking to all the states and getting information from the locals. Um, it also has uh, tremendous resources. There are something like 15,000 people that work at the CDC. Um, it operates um, the laboratories that uh, deal with the most infectious organisms in the world, and it develops vac- It develops um, tests for um, novel viruses, for new infections, and then it distributes those tests throughout the nation. And it also funds states and locals to do routine emergency preparedness work, uh, as well as routine laboratory work and epidemiology. So, so there too, there's there's money flowing, there's information flowing from CDC. But that CDC information um, has to be informed by what's happening at the local level and at the state, because it's the local and the state who will be uh, identifying cases, will be uh, assessing the level of um, preparedness that is necessary um, and uh, identifying gaps in uh, the resources uh, when considering the work that needs to get done. So under the best of circumstances, it's a team operation with the federal leadership coming from CDC, the boots on the ground at the local level and the states in between uh, coordinating the locals and communicating a good deal with CDC. Let's drill down on H1N1 because that's probably the, the, the closest analog to what we're facing right now with coronavirus. And, and you were the state health commissioner for the state of Massachusetts or the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Um, in, in that role, um, while, while the, the state health officer, 
how was what was your your interaction with the CDC, and then what was your interaction with the locals as sort of that go between between the federal level and the local level? Um, and how how did CDC uh, interact with you, and how did they lead uh, you in that in that circumstance? We uh, were learning from the CDC about H1N1 before we had cases in Massachusetts. We were hearing about cases uh, in Mexico, I think, initially, and uh, and CDC was guiding us a bit, uh, with regard to the the best known science about that virus ahead of time, so that we could uh, prepare to the best of our ability and we could inform policymakers. So we had a, a heads up ahead of time. We spent a lot of time. Uh, making sure that we had uh, accurate information to distribute to policymakers in the state and also to the public because they began to read about uh, H1N1. And then there were suspect cases in our state, and that ratcheted up a, a good deal the, the concerns um, within the Commonwealth. We uh, were able to work with clinicians in the state to um, to collect specimens on um, suspect cases, but we couldn't test for those uh, initially. We would collect those specimens and then ship them down to Atlanta, and Atlanta would tell us, yes, this is H1N1, no, it isn't, um, and we then would relay that information. So a good deal of waiting initially was what will CDC tell us. Um, we, um, we were able to explain to CDC what the issues were, the concerns from the public. We uh, pressed them for more information. We, um, uh, we had a daily interaction with them. And, and within a relatively short amount of time, we had the, uh, with CDC's guidance, the ability to do our own testing. So, so in the early days, the focus was really on information gathering, making sure we knew enough about the science of H1N1. And a lot of focus on uh, making sure that we had um, the ability to diagnose cases and to um, do our own laboratory capacity. Mm. I, and, you know, there are a lot of reasons why uh, coronavirus and, and this COVID-19 pandemic are different than H1N1, partly to do with the biology of, of the virus, um, but also partly to do with differences in the communication and the leadership. Um, can you speak to what what went differently between uh, COVID and uh, H1N1, and how much of that has to do with you know the leadership structure at the very top of the CDC? In fact, before we even get there, can you speak to the you know the way that the CDC works in terms of the political leadership and the appointees uh, versus the, the the folks who uh, are um, career folks at the CDC? And then also, you know, what that interaction looks like between the, the career uh, professionals at the CDC versus the political appointees? Sure. Uh, CDC is unusual um, compared to other federal agencies in that um, I, I believe there's only one political appointee out of the whole agency. Out of all those 15,000-odd people, there, when, when I was there, the, the director was the only a political appointee. And that was because there was such a respect for science and for scientific expertise at CDC and a recognition that you really needed people throughout the agency that um, knew their field better than anybody else. 
Um, that was true then. It, it, it's still true. Um, and um, historically, the CDC director has been an infectious disease physician. Uh, that was true under the response to H1N1, under Ebola, Zika, and it's uh, true. It's true now. And because so many of the people are uh, career employees, that is, they're not uh, political appointees, um, th then you have great stability within the organization when it comes to uh, experience and how to respond to uh, a major outbreak like we have now with coronavirus. Uh, the, the principal deputy at CDC now, Ann Shuket, was um, involved in the SARS outbreak and controlling that as well as other infectious disease outbreaks. She's for decades been involved in this work. Um, Jay Butler, who's at CDC now, was our contact for H1N1 uh, during the um, uh, that pandemic, and he is uh, providing uh, terrific leadership now in aspects of the coronavirus response. So there's there's a good deal of um, expert people who are just at CDC year in year out. The, the director, if I could just talk about that for a second, is often the, the in-between person. That person tends to have um, uh, the connection with the uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services and sometimes with the White House as well as the day-to-day -day work of the agency. So, so it, it's not an easy job because um, that person is uh, protecting the science of the agency, but also interacting with uh, a, a, um, the, the politics of Washington, D.C. Mm. And, um, you know, obviously we're in, we're in, in challenging political moments uh, right now. And um, how do you feel uh, the CDC has responded to um, this COVID-19 uh, pandemic? And what would you have liked to see? A major problem that CDC ran into is the test for the coronavirus that it had developed um, wasn't uh, working when it was distributed to the public health laboratories across the country. Those are the laboratories run by the states in most instances. Um, and in order to make testing more available around the country, those laboratories had to have the ability to test for the coronavirus. There was a, a major problem with the test that meant the laboratories uh, weren't able to use it, and CDC wasn't able to correct that problem quickly. So weeks passed before uh, testing became more available. In addition to that, the guidelines for who should be tested were unusually restrictive in the first few weeks of um, the CDC's work. Um, the guidance said that um, people should be tested for the coronavirus only if they'd had um, direct interaction with uh, people from Wuhan province um, and um, or people who were known to have um, been exposed to the coronavirus or have it. And so that that assumed that other people who didn't fit that criteria uh, wouldn't be positive for uh, for 
the coronavirus flu, and, and that turned out not to be the case. So what that meant is we, we still don't have uh, an accurate picture of how widespread uh, the, the, the virus is within the nation because we haven't been doing the necessary testing that would give us that picture. There are some who think that um, that given the president's incentives to uh, undersell the the burden of of actual cases, you know, he's he's um, obsessed with the quote unquote numbers. Um, that uh, there may have been political interference with um, the speed at which uh, tests were done, access to tests, uh, and even criteria. Um, is there a way that that would have happened? Um, and uh, what's your sense of, of whether or not that's true? I have no evidence that that is the case. Um, and I, as, as I've said before, I have enormous respect for the professionalism of the people at the Centers for Disease Control. And, um, and therefore, my, my inclination would be to believe that there was um, an insulation from uh, political influence uh, in the development of the um, the uh, the laboratory test and in the developments of the the uh, diagnostic criteria, but um, you know I just don't know. I, I actually I don't know how the the errors occurred at the CDC, and um, and I do believe that it it isn't easy when you have a novel virus to um, to respond rapidly and and get everything right all at once. Uh, I think they were genuinely trying very hard and and they just ran into some um, significant obstacles. Mm-hmm. And what is the um, what is the 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 response now? And we know we're woefully behind in terms of testing. Um, how can state and local public health potentially fill in uh, the difference between where we uh, ought to have been and where we actually are? Well, at this juncture, uh, most of the testing is not going to be done by the state laboratories. That would have been the case uh, had the test worked well. Um, But at this juncture, because we've lost that time, extra steps were taken to um, uh, accelerate the use of uh, the development and use of the uh, tests in the private sector. the that's I, I think an understandable policy decision. Um, it does make it more difficult to actually uh, predict how many tests are going to be performed because the private sector doesn't have the same reporting structure that state laboratories do. So uh, I think it's difficult to say at this point how many how much uh, how many much capacity actually exists at the state and the local level to do the testing. I, I think it's improving and, and it seems to be improving quickly, but I'm not sure whether that's uh, universal across the country. Um, and um, I think now there's also um, at least some unevenness in terms of who is getting tested uh, because the the criteria that was very strict before now is pretty wide open. It basically says it's it's up to a doctor to determine whether or not uh, it makes sense to test for the coronavirus. That's a very wide open uh, uh, 
set of criteria, or so essentially a criterion for for how to determine that. So, you know, I think we're going to see in the coming days and weeks just uh, how many people get tested and and where they get tested and and where the virus has gone. What can we expect moving forward? Um, you know, the country is riveted by this, and and people are extremely afraid. Um, what can we expect moving forward based on where we are and um, what will that mean for the institutions that we trust to keep us safe with respect to public health? Well, we're going to see a lot more cases. Uh, that's undeniable because um, this is a highly infectious virus and it's spreading fast and we're, we're beginning to get a sense of just how fast. Um, and, and the steps that are being taken now in terms of um, um, containment by um, alerting the public to the importance of uh, taking uh, steps to reduce their risk by limiting large meetings, by um, uh, creating additional warnings. All of that will be helpful in terms of flattening the, uh, the curve, and that means decreasing the number of people who become infected. So we're, we're hoping that that um, is not too late that we can take steps that will reduce the spread of the the um, the virus. And the reason that's so critically important is we know that um, a certain percentage of people who get sick from coronavirus get very serious illness, and a certain percentage will die. And we want to really protect those vulnerable populations. Um, if if the numbers get too big, it will be a um, certainly a tragedy in terms of the loss of life. It will be a major strain on the healthcare system, which may not have um, the hospital beds or the respirators to uh, treat everyone who should be treated um, with that level of care. So we, we, we have to closely monitor just how many people are infected, how many people are developing serious illness, and how is the healthcare system doing in responding to that uh, in, in a way that uh, increases the likelihood that people will recover instead of die. So just to, to take us out on a positive note, any, any silver linings in the clouds? Well, I, I think a few. I, I think Congress was very responsible in terms of re- its relatively quick action to pass $8.3 billion in funding, which now is... Uh, working its way through the federal government system to get out to the states and locals as fast as possible. That money is desperately needed, and and Congress deserves a lot of credit for working on that in a in a, a bipartisan way. Um, I would also say a possible silver lining is we're engaged and others are engaged in having more discussions now about how. The country needs to take public health more seriously, not only when there's a major epidemic like the one that we're facing now, but on a day-in, day-out basis. We cannot continue to um, nickel and dime the public health system and expect that it's going to be able to protect the public. So I'm hopeful that policymakers at the federal, state, and local level are going to say one lesson from fighting the coronavirus is we've got to make sure that we're um, bolstering the public health system so that it's modern, effective, um, and uh, prepared 
to protect the public, uh, not only when there's an outbreak, but on a day-to-day basis as we're facing very many threats to the health and well-being of the public. That was John Auerbach, president of Trust for America's Health. Now, as always, before we go, I want to share with you what I'm watching for right now. First, I'm monitoring how young people respond to calls for social distancing. Will we realize that we don't want to be the reason our parents or grandparents get sick? Just yesterday, Michigan, which is where I am, closed occupancy at all eateries, bars, and restaurants to avoid congregation after people spent almost all weekend celebrating St. Patty's Day like there wasn't a pandemic raging. I think this policy response is smart, but like we discussed already, we need to do a lot more to protect people from the economic consequences. It's not enough to save lives if you cost people their livelihoods. And I'm watching how our health system responds to a growing number of cases. On Saturday, I co-authored an op-ed for CNN trying to respond to this challenge. Along with my co-author, we called for a military deployment to build a parallel emergency healthcare system to deal specifically with COVID, staffed and operated by the military. A separate health system is what they erected in China and helped them manage the crisis there. Will we be able to do the same? That's all for today. I'll see you on Friday. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Katie Long is our senior producer. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Allison Falzetta, and Sydney Rapp. The theme song is by Taka Yasuzawa and Alex Uguiera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geisman. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Thanks for listening.